Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. I have a message for every 14-year-old in the room or watching online with us today. And this is from the Church Collective. This is not just from me. It does get better, okay? It really does get better. Do you remember what it was like to be 14 years old? Do you remember that awkward human being that kind of strolled around in your body and you're like, who is this? I don't even know. And I remember being 14 and it wasn't much better for me than anyone else. And uh, I remember there was this insatiable desire to, at equal moments, to fit in and to be independent, right? Like you wanna be unique, but not so unique that nobody likes you, right? And so you're kind of always trying to find this. So for me, my quest to be unique, uh, my approach to it was simple. I just found someone that I looked up to and I just copied them exactly. That was how I got so unique. And so it really worked really well. People were very impressed by me, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but no, I remember at 14, it was just an interesting time of life as we can all remember. And, uh, but it was also an important time of life for me. It was a time when my heart really got fixed on following Jesus, serving Jesus. I was passionate about Jesus starting at age 14. And, uh, and so there was this Christian musician that I really, really looked up to. He became one of my heroes because I was a musician. And, and so I, I basically just copied everything he did. I would dress like him. I tried to sing like him. I tried to like, when I played a, an instrument, I tried to play it the way he played it. And so he was kind of just this real instrumental figure in my spiritual development, even though he didn't know me, I didn't know him, but it was really cool. And so, uh, the, you know, that, that was just my experience. But interestingly enough, a few years ago, he posted on Instagram this really, really long post explaining why he would no longer be a Christian musician. In fact, he was actually explaining that he was deconverting from faith. He said, I was losing my religion. And there was a really long post, not enough for us to go into this whole thing. But uh, I remember there was one phrase in this post that really stood out to me because it kind of encapsulated the whole post. And he quite simply said, he said, science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. In other words, one of the reasons he was walking away from faith was because science had kept advancing so far that we no longer really needed God to explain things. And this is kind of a popular approach to understanding the world that maybe at one time religious uh, experiences or mythicism, it was all a part of how we survived and how we advanced, but now we've gotten to the point where we don't need God. And so there's kind of been this science versus faith battle that started to take place. And maybe now more than ever, where it feels like you gotta choose a side, which is kind of a tension for some of us. Because for some of us, we're intellectual and, and we like to think through things. And so if we have to choose between an invisible God or these tangible byproducts of science, it's kind of hard to not wanna choose Science, and so, you know, you see documentaries where they're talking about all these things that conflict with maybe the childhood faith that you grew up with. And, and you start to wonder, what, what am I really believing here? In fact, some people would even say that people who have faith are irrational, they're lunatics, they're people that uh, should have no voice in the public sphere. Because if you really are crazy enough to believe in an invisible being, then you have no right to speak into a world where the real things get done. And so many of us have been growing up or have grown up with this assumption going on in our culture that science has eradicated our need for God. And I wanna welcome you back, whether you're watching online or if you're watching at TCI or family there or in Boardman, or if you're here 
And Warren, I wanna welcome you to this series that we started a few weeks back called Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. And the series is kind of dealing with these assumptions that are often under the surface of our culture. There are these assumptions that we kind of just take in, we just drink them in, but we don't actually realize what we're doing. And one of these key assumptions that I wanna get you to not drink today is the assumption that science explains everything so we don't need God. I want you to stop drinking that Kool-Aid if you've been drinking it. And, And here's what I'll say to you. My journey to faith was not one that was deeply informed by science. The way God captured my heart did not have much to do with the way the universe was birthed. Uh, It was not really on my mind. God got a hold of my heart in a totally different way. And maybe that's your story too. But one thing that we are all called to do, in fact, Peter would say, is that when someone asks you for some reasons for the hope that you have, some reasons for the hope that you have in this Jesus that you serve, that you should be able to coherently, respectfully explain it to them. And so all of us, whether that was our journey to faith or not, all of us are called to be on mission in the world around us. So if you are a teacher, you're called to be a missionary as a teacher. If you're someone who works a job, you are called to be a missionary to that place. So all of us should be armed and ready to be able to explain the faith that we hold to. And I will say this, I would venture to say that even if you have never struggled with the conflict of science and faith, chances are your grandkids, or your kids or somebody in your world has. And so it is actually our responsibility not to to go super deep diving into all of it, but to understand the tension that this creates in some people's lives and to be able to speak into it. And so that's our goal for today. And I will say this, I'm not here to answer every question or objection that comes to the scientific findings. Today, I'm trying to lay more of a groundwork for why it's okay to be a rational thinking believer that you don't have to throw ration and intellect out the door. You don't have to say it's either science or faith, that you can actually embrace a faith that is deepened by science. And historically, there's kind of been this misconception. In fact, a lot of people will write about this and they'll say, well, the church has always suppressed or persecuted science, that the church has always kind of been against science. And so you read stories about Galileo and how the church was really trying to suppress him because of what he was saying about the world. And one of the things that you discover if you actually study history is that this is not the case at all, that scientific advancement was largely uh, a great achievement. And many of the earliest and greatest scientists were people that were Christians. They were faith-filled believers, like Copernicus in the 1500s, who, div- who understood for the very first time that the earth revolved around the sun. He was a Christian. Galileo in the 1600s, who was the father of science, was a Christian. Sir Isaac Newton in the 1700s, who discovered the laws of physics, he was a Christian. And in William Kelvin in the 1800s, who created the Kelvin scale and understood temperature in a way we never had before, he was a Christian. In the 1900s, J.J. Thompson, who discovered electrons and subatomic particles, he was a Christian. And even in our modern time, Christians are still in places of position within science, like Dr. Francis Collins, who leads the Human Genome Project. He's a Christian. And what you'll discover as you study throughout history is that Christians were responsible for originating the university and that within the fields of medicine, that it was Christians who felt a responsibility for their neighbors who were in pain or suffering 
that they felt a need to help heal the sick. And so they were a huge part in creating scientific advancements that helped create uh, great breakthroughs in medicine. And so here's what Alistair McGrath would say. He's a professor at Oxford. He said, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. So historically, if you're hearing these things, you have to know that the people that really study history would say, eh, it's actually a little bit inflated what people are talking about, this conflict between science and faith. And we could go one step further and say that within the Christian thinking was actually what created room for science to flourish. Think about it. Some religions would say nature is uh, it's sacred. So they would say, you can't study nature because it's sacrilegious. You can't study a God. You can't try and test nature because it's sacrilegious. Others would say nature is just an illusion. It's just uh, kind of this great mirage. And so it's pointless to study it because it doesn't actually exist. But then came Jesus and his followers in the world that he was living in. And Jesus taught us a different approach to the world. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. He says, when he's asked about what's the most important command in the Old Testament, he says, love the Lord. Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Many times we assume that faith is all about the heart and soul. Maybe you've heard blind faith. And I think Jesus would say, ah, that's not the kind of faith that I'm trying to create. Jesus is calling us as Christians, as followers of him to engage with our faith, with our mind. It is connected. And so this is what set the stage throughout history for Christians to be able to create incredible scientific advancements. But here's the question, because maybe that was true throughout history, but what about today? What about when there has been so many breakthroughs over the last 30 to 50 years? What, does God still have a place? And here's what I find interesting. The Association of American Advancement for Science, they did this study of scientists. And they discovered that 51% of scientists believe in a God or a higher power. That 31% of them believe in a personal deity. And 7% said they didn't know. Now it's important to know that is less than the general population. But it's also important to know that the majority of scientists aren't atheists. That at some level you can be a person of great thinking and great thought and rationality and yet still believe in a God who is above all things. In fact, it's interesting when they started to, to separate out the types of scientists that were more likely to believe in God versus others, this is what they found. Uh, Leslie Newbegin comments on this. He says, atomic physicists are much more likely to believe in God than sociologists. In other words, people in the hard sciences like physics and biology, they were much more likely to believe in God than those who were in sociology and psychology. And I just find that interesting that you don't have to abandon reason to become a follower of Jesus. And I think part of the confusion that we have when it comes to science and faith is that we don't really understand what science is designed to do. We put too much pressure on science for something it can't actually give us. See, because science by its nature is designed to study nature. So if there was ever something supranatural or above nature, science could never actually measure it. I love 
this uh, thought process that the philosopher Alvin Plantinga talks about when he talks about people who say, I will only live by what can be scientifically verified. He says, this is very similar to a drunk man who is walking down the street late at night and loses his keys and decides only to look under the lights because that's where he can see best. (laughs) In fact, he goes one step further and says, it's actually more like this. It's actually like saying, the keys must be under the lights because that's where I can see. And isn't that true that if God exists, is it possible that he exists in a metaphysical state or beyond physical states where you may not be able to capture him in a test tube or a microscope? And so we can see that science is not at conflict with faith because science is not designed to undertake the questions that faith seeks to answer. Science is much more of a question mark than it is an exclamation point. And yet what we discover is not only can science not eradicate God, it actually might lead us to something greater. I think about the story of Alan Rex Sandage, and I know you know who that is, so I won't even explain that to you. <laughs> no, I did not. I did not know who he was before this either, but Alan Rex Sandage is known as one of the greatest living observational cosmologists, which is somebody who studies the origins of the universe. They try and understand what the universe, how it came to be, and He's been one of the greatest. He's one of the most prestigious. He's won many, many awards. And, um, and he's called the grand old man of cosmology. Uh, and so there was this conference that was going to be debating the existence of God and his place in the formation of the universe. And the way it worked is there was a panel on a stage and there would be people who sat on the theist side, which believed that God did exist. He did have a hand in it. And people who sat on the atheist side that believed that there was no God. He had no hand in it. And because Sandage was a, uh, from pretty much a lifelong atheist, it was assumed he would sit on the atheistic side. But as you could probably tell, because I'm telling the story, he sat on the theistic side. And when he did, it shocked everyone. It, it, it confused everyone. And when he was asked about it later by a, a journalist, here's what he said about why he came to the conclusion that God actually exists. He says, it is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. When you really start to dig into what this world and this universe has to offer and the origins of it all, it really does leave a lot more questions than answers. It really does start to say, there's gotta be something bigger than this. And this is what the Christian message has been all along. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 19, verse one. He says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. When you look at the night sky and you see the brilliance of a sunset or, or when you uh, are observing just down on the grass and you see all of this microbiology that is taking place, that it is actually a message, it is a song, it is an anthem of God's glory. And this is why science does not eradicate God, it explains him. It, it can't eradicate him, it can't speak to him, but it can explain his nature, it can explain his glory, his power. And so if science is positioned to ask the questions of how and what, 
then maybe we should start using those questions to start asking a greater question, which is why and who? Look at what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter eight, verse three. He says, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should care about them? Human beings that you should care for them. In other words, when you see the grandness of our universe and you see even how infinitesimally small it is, it should cause you to wonder, God, if you know every star in existence, why do you care about me? The Bible also says that he knows the number of hairs on your head, that he knew you before you were born, that he loves you. And this is where Christianity offers this compelling story that, that science can't really speak to. It's not designed to, but Christianity is this message that God created humanity, not because he needed us to fulfill some purpose, but because he wanted us, because there was some level of joy he would gain from a relationship with his creation. And so we are invited through science, through what it studies, to investigate the world that should lead us to the who behind it all. And yet many of us, I wonder if oftentimes we feel so overwhelmed by these topics of science and faith that we just kind of throw up a, a kind of a white flag and say, you know what, I just don't know. And we kind of just get comfortable in the, I don't know. We kind of are willing to just kind of keep living our lives, but just stay in that state of, eh, can't really know because it's such a big topic. And how could anyone ever know if God exists or, you know, it's just, how could you know? I remember I was, uh, at the gym and I got to know some of the guys at the gym. And one of the guys was just a real character. He was a real funny guy. And one time we got into this conversation on spiritual things and we started talking about um, the afterlife. And I asked him, what do you think happens when people die? And I remember he looked at me and said, well, I can tell you it's gonna be a lot like Wizard of Oz. <laughs> We're gonna pull back the curtain and be super surprised. <laughs> and I remember thinking, okay, so basically what you're saying is we don't know. We could never know. Whatever we guess, it's going to be wrong. And so because of that, he had kind of come to this place where he was like, I'm just not going to take a faith position. But what's interesting about that is, ironically, not taking a faith position is taking a position on faith, right? To not commit to a set of beliefs about faith is to commit to a set of beliefs about faith. And so many times we kind of hide behind the ambiguity of saying, well, no one could ever know, but we never actually do the work of investigating the claims of the faith and the religions. And so this is where I think Blaise Pascal speaks very helpfully to this subject. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician and a physicist and a philosopher, kind of did it all. I'm sure his mom was very proud. And uh, he, he did this all in the 1600s. And he was this brilliant man. And he, he created something called Pascal's Wager. And Pascal's Wager is a it's a brilliant um, philosophical statement that is designed to help get us from a place of ambiguity to at least making a choice. And so this is Pascal's wager. He says, God is, or he is not. Can we all agree on that? Even if you haven't agreed with the word I've said this entire time, can we all agree that God either exists or he doesn't exist? Thank you. All right. <laughs> he says, do not then reprove for error those who have made a choice for you know nothing about it. This is what people who might reprove others for making a choice would say. They'd say, no, but I blame them for having made a choice. Not this choice, but a choice. 
For again, both he who chooses heads and he who chooses tails are equally at fault. They are both in the wrong. The true course, the wise course, the smart course, the mature course is to not wager at all. And isn't this kind of what our culture would say? It's like, don't put your eggs in one basket. Or if you do, don't do it so extremely that you would say that's the only right way. Because it's silly to choose. It's silly to believe that one could actually be right while all the other ones are wrong. Are you really gonna tell me that one's right and all the other ones are wrong? Therefore, it's more mature, it's more refined, it's more nuanced to just sit back and to just take a neutral stance, to not take a stance. But of course, Pascal has something to say to that. He says, yes, but you must wager. He says, it is not optional. You are embarked. Which will you choose then? I love this analogy that Kerry Newhoff uses. He, he talks about if your friend came to you and said, hey, I'd, I'd like to take a trip to Chicago. I have a flight already booked. Would you like to go? And you say, I don't know. That's a solid answer. You might have to investigate. You might have to look, can I make that schedule work? All of that. But eventually when the day of the flight comes and he knocks on your door and says, hey, do you wanna go to Chicago with me? And you say, I don't know. Eventually your I don't know has become your no. Because at some point there is a due date. There is a deadline. And so to not make a choice is to make a choice. And here's what Pascal is saying. He's saying, from the moment you were born, from the moment air started filling those lungs, you were embarked on a journey that demands a decision. Whether you think it demands one or not is not up to you. It really is all about what decision will you make? And this is why it is not immoral to say that one faith position or one grasp of truth is better than others, because if truth actually exists, it would be better than all non-truth. And so Pascal, he tries to help us with this wager. And here's what he says. Yes, you must wager. Let us see, since you must choose, let us see which interests you least. Let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. And if you lose, you lose nothing. So he says, if you wager that God exists, if you wager that God is real, and you start to shape your life based on that, then if you're right, you gain all. Your life in this world will become much better because you will flourish under the design of the creator. If you live life under the design of the creator, you will do things in a way that will benefit you better. But if, he says, if you do that, then you may also gain eternal life. You may also gain eternity in an incredible state in heaven with God. And he says, if you lose, if you're wrong, if you say that there is a God and there is no God, he says, what do you lose? You lose nothing. Why? Because if God doesn't exist, then when you die, you won't remember. You won't exist to even know you got it wrong. And eventually our sun will burn out and our earth will fade away. And none of this will have mattered anyways, because no one will be here to remember it. It won't have really mattered in the grand scheme of the universe because there was no grand scheme of the universe. And so Pascal is, is saying to us, look, what do you have to gain? You have everything to gain. What do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose. So he, he finishes with this. He says, wager then without hesitation that he is. Let's come back to this key point. You must wager. It is not optional. You are embarked. Which will you choose then? 
you are embarked. We have to understand that indecision is a decision and that all of us are embarked in this journey where we must decide between faith in God or faith in no God, but we all must choose. And so Pascal would say, wager that God is. Now here's what this doesn't do. This doesn't prove that God exists, but it does raise the stakes. It does say that if you have kind of been living your life, doing whatever you want and just kind of, kind of keeping science as one of the main excuses of why you've never really pursued God, that it's not a good excuse, that you need to do some homework, that you need to start approaching this with some seriousness, knowing that there's something at stake, that you are making a choice. And please understand that these things that sound like such great catchphrases now, they may not matter when you stand before God, if God really exists. I think about what the famous atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell said. Somebody once asked him, they said, what will you do if you're wrong and God actually does exist? And Russell commented in return, he said, I would stand before God and I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And this is something I've heard repeated many, many times. And basically the idea is, God, you didn't do enough to convince me. And yet this would be how the apostle Paul would respond to Russell. In Romans chapter one, verse 19, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In other words, the more you care about science, the more you should see the universe at work, the more you should see God. You should see his power revealed in the magnitude of this universe, which is, I mean, have you ever been near a waterfall and just thought, this is insane? It should reveal the glory of God. It says his invisible qualities. When you notice that human beings tend to actually care about things called right and wrong, that they have a morality to them, it should cause you to say, that's different. Why do we care about that? Your dog does not care about right and wrong unless it means it doesn't get a treat, right? Okay. <laughs> but human beings uniquely care about something called right and wrong. Why? Because it is the invisible qualities of the God whose image we are made in. And so Paul would say that the invisible is made visible through the visible. <laughs> but as Christians, we would take it one step further. In fact, Paul would have too, because we would say, look, I know it can be difficult, but there is a way that the invisible became visible through a person. And that happened 2000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth made some outrageous claims that claims that got him in a lot of trouble. You should read the story. And uh, he made these claims that he was the God who had always existed and had always been around and created everything and that he was here to kind of right all the wrongs that humanity had made for ourselves. And, and then he went out and proved it because he predicted he would die and then be raised to life again. Now the death part, people could predict that. The part where you come back from the dead, nobody had ever successfully predicted that one. And so the reason we are here today, the reason that we are willing to get this message out there is because we are convinced 
that three days after he was put to death, that he was seen by many of his followers. And for 40 days, he spent time with those people as a man who was put to death, but was now alive. And we believe the reason behind that is that God raised him from the dead. And that means everything about it. It was the centerpiece of human history. And it means everything for what our lives should look like going forward. That is the God who was invisible, that became visible. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we believe, and we wanna invite you into a discovery of who Jesus is. What I love about Jesus is that Jesus did not discount you because of your doubts. In fact, when he was raised from the dead, it said that some of his disciples didn't believe. It says that they had some doubts. I think we could cut them some slack, couldn't we? Have you ever seen anyone that you met that actually was raised to, to life again? I haven't. And so uh, I know this, that it would be real easy to call him Doubting Thomas and say, oh, that, you know, that's Doubting Thomas over there. But you know what? Jesus, he never called him Doubting Thomas. When Thomas had doubts about seeing Jesus, Thomas said, look, I, I want to believe, but I cannot believe until I see him with my own eyes. You know what Jesus did? Jesus met Thomas right where he was. And I believe he's willing to do the same for you. There was this father that uh, Jesus was helping out and, and Jesus said, where's your faith? And I love what, G, what this father responded to Jesus. I think it's a prayer that we can pray to God if God really exists, which is, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And so as we tie a bow on this, Christians, I wanna encourage you that there are people in your life that are looking for more than just pat answers. And so I'm not saying you have to know everything. I'm just saying if someone comes to you with a real question, do your best to invite them on a journey to discover a real answer. Not just catchy phrases that kind of make you feel better, but they're like, oh, what was that? And if you are someone who is on this journey of trying to discover who Jesus is, I wanna encourage you with all urgency, with all haste to be someone that says, I will investigate. I will do what Thomas did and say, Jesus, would you make yourself real to me? Would you pray with me? God, I, I'm so thankful that you do not discount us because of our doubts. And I know that there are some who are incredibly intellectual, much smarter than most of us, that there are some real hangups they have in giving you their heart and giving you their life, giving you their soul because of what's going on in their mind. And what I'm asking for is I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking for God that for just evidences to show up in their heart, but God, even more than that, that you by your grace would help them discover who Jesus is, that you would open the eyes of their understanding so that they would know you more clearly. As we stay in this attitude of prayer, whether you're watching in our family at TCI or in Boardman or online or here in the building, I wanna give you an invitation to meet Jesus. Jesus is God. I, I'm convinced, I believe it. And because he's God, Jesus, when he says things, it matters to me and it should matter to you. And here's one of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said, if you want to take up, if you wanna become one of my followers, if you wanna experience true life, you gotta give me your life. And so I wanna invite you into the greatest relationship you could ever possibly know, the greatest relationship in all the universe 
which is a relationship between you and Jesus, you and God the Father, you and God the Spirit. Jesus came to make all of your wrongs right. He came to forgive you of all of your sins. He came to give you new life that starts not just for eternity, but here and now. He came to bring you into a family. And so all it requires for you to enter into this is the grace of Jesus Christ and faith in him. We are saved because of what Jesus has done for us, but we enter into it because of our faith. And so if you say, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know that my answer to his question, will you say yes to me? My answer is yes. Then what we're gonna do is we're going to pray together. It's a prayer that kind of is shaped after this idea that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And we're gonna pray this out together, our church family all over the world. And we're gonna pray this knowing that if you pray it from your heart, that God will save you. That if you in your heart have faith in Jesus, that you will be made whole. So church, would you help me pray so that no one prays alone? Say, Jesus, I need you. I know I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I repent. I turn from my sin. And right now, I make a decision to follow you. Jesus, I believe that you're God. You died for my sins and you rose to life again so I could have life with you. I'm yours forever. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast.